Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hello, I'm Charles Robinson. Welcome to Future City, the monthly show here on 88.1 WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. Today on the show, technology and how it shapes our lives. You've heard the saying, there's an app for that. We look at tech you may want, are trying to get, and when you can expect it. Can our thirst for the newest and latest gadget be quenched? Later in the show, I'll speak to Greg Morrison, the creator and host of Bumper to Bumper TV, and Jessica Ray of Maryland Public Television's Motor Week. The pair will discuss automotive high tech. Andrew Coy, the executive director of the Digital Harbor Foundation, will join Future City to answer this question. Do young people in Baltimore fit in the tech space? We kick off our show with Bob Anthony. He's a longtime technology reporter who covers the tech industry for multiple outlets. Bob, let's begin with this. A number of people have gotten a lot of electronic gadgets, but I think you and I know one thing, and that is we won't have an answer for parents who are looking for a PS4, Oculus, or an Xbox games. So let's get right into the to the consumer goods. What are some of the things and the trends that you're seeing that's out there? Well, the people who, uh, and first of all, thanks for having me on, uh, the people who are looking for 5G phones, you can find them real easily now, either from Apple, Samsung. Uh, this, what's going to happen in 2022 is you're actually going to start to get the service you expected when you bought the 5G phone in 2021. So I, you know, I think that's something to look forward to as uh, the new models roll out. Uh, you know, a little less disappointment for people, I guess. And uh, you and I were talking uh, the advances in screens and foldable screens and things like that. I don't think those have taken off the way they uh, the manufacturers wanted them to. People still need phones that won't uh, cause them too much trouble when they're trying to do something simple. I know the thing that I want a phone to do is make a phone call. Um, one of the things that I noted was is that there are a lot more internet protocol phone calls being made. What's the upside and the downside of those? Uh, it used to be reliability, not so much now. I make phone calls with uh, uh, the old Google Hangouts, uh, some of the apps that I have on my phone. The clarity is good, and the 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 reliability, in other words, the the chances that you'll get knocked off. Uh, it's not what it used to be. So that's a good side of the phone evolution. Those IP calls, uh, calls over internet protocol, that's what we're talking about, uh, have gotten better. I want to get in and drill down on, um, if you will, the supply chain issue. Obviously, we all know that chip manufacturers, primarily based in Asia, have been providing uh, these chips to various manufacturers from the Apples, the Nokias, the, the Samsungs, and, and, and all the other alphabet soups that are out there. 
How's that looking these days? It's still a long road ahead for the chips that are in short supply right now. The, the organizers of CES, the annual consumer electronics show in Vegas, had a press conference last month when they, uh, they, and they mentioned that the supply chain shortage will be with us through the entire year. And just to explain, the chips that are needed aren't the main chips, the big processors that do all the work. It's the little side chips, the, uh, the helper chips that are essential uh, that are in short supply. So you can have a great notebook design, but not have the little chip that processes like uh, printing, you know, something simple like that. And, and, and that's what's, and the same is on the car side. It's not the power chips that are in short supply. It's the little worker chips that they can't find. And without those, you don't, you know, you can't make the whole package. So that's going to be with us for a while. I noted that uh, the last rollout from Apple of a phone happened this year. Normally, by the time you're ready to go to Las Vegas to this computer electronics show, people are kind of teasing what they're going to be bringing. What's going on now with manufacturers? Are they, are they just kind of stuck? They're, yeah, they're in a holding pattern. Even the ones that are, that are going to be at the real CES in Las Vegas in, uh, uh, in early January, in the first uh, full week of January. They're still, uh, as you can see, they're not rolling out products as quickly as we're used to. I mean, uh, uh, we have a lot of rumored products and even the rumored products tend to get pushed back on the calendar. Uh, Samsung has a rumored Galaxy S22 coming out in next February. They haven't announced it, but there have been leaks all over the place. Uh, don't know if they have the supply chain uh, smoothness to roll that out on that date. So that's, you know, Samsung, Apple, Motorola. I mean, everybody is uh, fighting for the same uh you know, small helper chips to get their products out. I want to talk a little bit about uh, an old innovation that came back this year, the flip phone. Tell me a little bit about that. It's, it's funny. Yeah, you and I remember the old uh, thin, skinny Motorola flip phones that everybody thought was so cool with a little antenna that popped out. Uh, obviously, we don't have external antennas anymore. But yeah, there's sort of a... a Slight comeback uh, to flip phones. There's one made by a company called Cat, C-A-T. They license the name from Caterpillar, the people who make the tractors, and it's a ruggedized flip phone. So you close it and the screen is protected and the body is such that you can drop it on concrete and expect it to survive. And then you have the the foldable uh, flip phones from uh, Samsung with the actual screen that folds. Now that technology, they Samsung thought would take off, but I'm still trying to figure out why I need a phone with a screen that actually folds. So the the marketing ability of that isn't as big as I guess Samsung thought it would be. And and with with the uh, Microsoft and their foldable small uh, unit, uh, that's not actually a, a foldable screen, that's two screens, but still, I don't see that jumping off of shelves right now. What's hot out there? Obviously, you're in New York and 
you guys get anything and everything you want. What's hot there in the marketplace? Of course, the game consoles, if you could find them, they're hot, the latest, greatest of each uh, version uh, of the game consoles. And even the components that improve gaming machines are hot. There's a particular, and I don't remember the exact uh, name of it, there's a particular video card that is always in short supply. And it's meant for people with desktop gaming PCs, muscle PCs meant for, you know, shooting each other up in these uh, Fortnite contests and whatnot. And once they get back on the shelves, you will see lines outside of Best Buy just for that. So among that community, it's a, you know, these components are extremely hot. Uh, but for the general public, I don't see a uh, power, a dominant product coming down the pipe for uh, either the holiday, well, for the for 2022. It, it's still sort of a, let's see what's going to be hot and then let's see what we can actually deliver. The technology sector, Robert, has been driving NASDAQ for since its inception. What, what is your sense of how these companies in the current environment are they faring well? Or are they or are they just holding on? Or they're not going to see the types of double-digit profit numbers that they've had in the past? Yeah, I don't see any company that's poised to really explode uh, in the in the coming year. Uh, like I said, if it's driven by their product sales, they're going to be uh, hamstrung by the ability to get parts and the ability just to ship them, even if they're built in the U.S. Uh, there are components from overseas that have to be uh, resourced. So I, uh, I'm just trying to think of a company on the edge. At, at least I don't know of too many big companies on the edge that are poised to fail, like uh, uh, you know, or shrink like uh, BlackBerry has over the years, uh, to the point where we don't see their you know their products anymore. But uh, I don't see the explosive growth either. So Nasdaq, I think, is coming towards a uh, a 50-50 year uh, on, the, on the tech side. I want to get out of here on this. Uh, Robert, you've seen the evolution of this industry. Can it continue to evolve? Uh, the good thing about the tech industry is that it has to. Uh, you basically have to do something different as the, the, the needs change. Uh, when you look at the types of phones that we use now and uh, what we used just say five years ago. It, it's funny. Uh, the ads have changed. Every ad I see for a phone shows the back, not the front. They're showing the cameras, not the screens and the, and the you know, whatever is, is on the front panel. Uh, so it, the tech industry has to evolve and has to put things aside that aren't working like the 3D TVs we thought would be blowing us out of the water a few years ago, they're all gone and, and things like that. So evolve or disappear. I've been talking to Bob Anthony. He's a technology reporter who covers the tech industry for multiple outlets. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. We have to take a brief break, but don't you go away. When we come back, if you haven't noticed, 
there's a lot of high tech going into cars. I'll speak with a pair of automotive experts, Greg Morrison of Bumper to Bumper TV and Jessica Ray of Maryland Public Television's Motor Week. They'll answer what's on everyone's mind. How long is it going to take to get a brand new car or truck? Before we go, we polled some high school students who attend the after-school program at the Digital Harbor Foundation. We wanted to know what was on their tech wish list. Our first list comes from Nina C., who works with the Mini Makers Group. Her list has a smartwatch, a Nintendo Switch, a smartphone, a PC computer, and a VR headset. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City, the monthly show here on 88.1 WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. On today's show, we're looking at technology and how we interact with it on a daily basis. While cell phones and computers instantly come to mind, it's automobiles and trucks that are seeing some of the latest innovations. Joining me for this part of the conversation are Jessica Ray of Maryland Public Television's Motor Week and Greg Morrison of Bumper to Bumper TV. Let's begin with this. Uh, obviously, there have been a lot of innovations in the automotive field, and you've been tracking some of this. Uh, give us an idea. What are some of the bells and whistles that folks who are in the market to buy cars are going to see? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of really amazing convenience features in modern cars. I mean, our cars are, are really just full of technology, any new car, truthfully. Um, I think some of my favorite things would have to be um, like wireless charging, wireless phone charging in your car, uh, which is really, really handy. Um, another really big thing is Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, which um, now used to in its first uh, iterations being in vehicles, which this is essentially a way in which you can use your phone um, to connect to your vehicle and play your music, use it for navigation, have it connect your your phone calls, etc, um, all through the interface of your phone directly onto your car. And um, in, in its beginnings, it was wired, so you had to have a USB cord with you at all times. And now we're starting to see rollouts of it being wireless in cars, which is a really big deal because you can essentially just sort of keep your phone in your pocket at all times. Um, there's also, you know, a lot of safety features that we see in cars, um, a lot of driver assistance systems, um, things that, you know, make it safer for you as long as you use them as a tool, things like adaptive cruise control, um, uh, lane keep assist, which sort of monitors where you are in the lane. I mean, your car has usually will have so many cameras on it in, in the front to just sort of monitor where you are at all times, uh, plenty of sensors as well. 
So you also have head-up displays, which are really interesting, and that essentially projects um, uh, something on your windshield that'll show you some things like how fast you're going so you don't have to look down at your speedometer. It might show you what, what road that you're on, how close you are to the person in front of you. So if your car thinks you're a little bit too close, it might even show you a little infographic that says, hey, relax. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there's uh, plenty of, of technology in our cars that uh, really can, can make it safer for you, but also just a little bit mo more luxurious. A lot of things that we've seen in luxury cars are finally starting to make their way down um, to sort of base models, truthfully. Let's talk about uh, innovations in the automotive industry. Specifically, I want to talk about trucks and SUVs. What can we look forward to and what are we getting? Wow. Well, um, if you got three hours, you can go through it all. But the 15-second uh, version is um, safety technology in trucks uh, is equal to or surpassing what we see in passenger cars these days, but also electrification. Uh, General Motors has the Sierra truck from Chevrolet that's going to go electric, the GMC electric. Uh, Ford has the F-150 Lightning. Uh, we have companies like Rivian, who are new players in the, in the space, and uh, Tesla also getting in with electric trucks, battery electric powered trucks with a range of two to 300 miles, maybe 400 miles that can work like a regular F-150, 1500 series truck and do the job all day long. And the best part about it, they're not uh, putting out any fumes or uh, toxins. You plug them in at night and off you go the next morning. And that's a step that those of us who cover the auto industry have been waiting for, for at least 10 to 15 years. Uh, the industry had been challenged by development expenses and the process. Uh, the technology has gotten better. Let me talk a little bit about this whole idea that uh, the automotive industry was, I don't want to say caught by surprise uh, in lieu of a number of uh, chip manufacturers being outside of the country. What are they doing to, if you will, to, to change that paradigm? A couple of things have happened. First of all, they weren't caught by surprise. They caught themselves on their own shoelaces. Uh, I have to be very blunt about this. The domestic automakers and some of the big imports, when the pandemic hit, said, oh, we're going to suspend operations. We're not going to order any more chips. We're going to hold the orders on chips. Well, the leading chip manufacturer was in Taiwan, still is in Taiwan. So this guy says, okay, fine. I'm getting orders for iPhones and everything else I need chips for. So he shifted his production to that. Now, a couple of brands had actually stockpiled a supply of chips for a long time. Toyota is one of them. Hyundai Key is another one. And so they're able to keep up production. That said, almost every manufacturer is either creating their own or going in partnership with somebody or doing a long-term deal with someone to set up chip manufacturing processes around the globe. We're starting to see them pop up here in North America. Either they've broken ground or they'll be breaking ground soon. The problem with that though is it takes two years to get a plant like that up and running and creating high quality chips that you can rely upon. At the same time, the automakers are also getting into the battery business. They recognize that I just can't walk down to uh, Pep Boys and order enough electric batteries for my car. I need to be able to manufacture my own. So Ford has announced they're putting a battery plant in Kentucky, another one in Tennessee. 
Toyota recently announced that in Greensboro, North Carolina, they're putting a battery plant. Uh, other manufacturers are doing deals to get battery plants set up. Stellantis, which is the new corporate parent for what we know as the Chrysler Corporation, has announced they're putting in at least two battery plants in the North American market to serve that need. They're talking about creating enough batteries right now to probably build seven to 10 million electric vehicles every year. That's looking down the line as to where we're going. I wanted to talk about a little bit about some of the bells and whistles that are going into uh, automotive vehicles. Uh, give us some ideas of some new and interesting things that you've been seeing. <clears throat> well, uh, for the last few years, Charles, if you've been in any kind of new car, the big thing is, you know, the center, the center screen, the display screen, the multiple functions. Uh, now you get into trucks and SUVs, light duty trucks, medium duty trucks and SUVs, and you'll have these massive screens in there that will do everything from give you routing destinations, work with Alexa or, or Google to take um, destinations in. Uh, they can also work with your household alarm system so that you can tie one thing to another. So I'm in the car, I'm driving down the road, and I can hit a button and say, alarm, deactivate alarm, I'll be there in one minute. Deactivate your alarm. Uh, safety technology. Uh, we all know what a mirror does on a car. And many of us have become familiar with blind spot monitoring on cars. Now, pickup trucks have great blind spot monitoring systems, considering how much load they're carrying that comes in real handy. Uh, one of the other things is forward collision assistance. That basically says it's not assisting you have a collision, it's assisting you to avoid a collision, preferably with a human being. Uh, there's technology now that uh, it's called lane turn. You're making a left or a right turn at a corner. This system uses a combination of radar and cameras to say, okay, this is the area you're gonna be turning into. Do I see another vehicle coming down at a rate of speed that may interfere with you and have a collision? At which point it will either alert you or stop your car at some point so to let the other vehicle pass. Uh, and this is a good thing for pedestrians as well and people on bicycles. How many times have we heard of pedestrians and folks on bicycles saying, that guy almost ran me over. You know, he like acted like he didn't see me or know me. We're sort of like dead center in the issue of it. Truthfully, the, the shortage is not going away uh, in 2022. Uh, I think most people can confidently say that we will be looking at this issue until at least 2023. The supply chains um, really were backed up for quite some time. I mean, if you remember the early days of the pandemic, um, auto manufacturers were really, really struggling and they had no idea that the industry was going to bounce back like it did. And now people want new cars. Everybody wants a new car now, of course, now that there's a shortage. Um, so we will likely see this shortage specifically with chips and the fact that our vehicles require more and more chips, the more techno technologically advanced that they get. So, um, yeah, at least 2023. I want to ask about, um, obviously, we've moved to electrical vehicles and many of the car manufacturers are moving there. First of all, i got to yes. ask, is the combustible engine dead? No, it isn't. I think that's a misconception because um, uh, I know a lot of folks are thinking that it's just going to be like one day all they're going to sell is electric cars. And I, one day that is a possibility, but it's not that close in our future. 
I think a lot of folks are optimistic in, in our switch to electric, but the internal combustion engine is not dead. Um, if anything, I would say that there will be improvements to the internal combustion engine. Um, we're right now we're seeing a lot more uh, automakers integrate uh, what we what are called mild hybrid systems, which essentially use a 48 volt mild hybrid battery pack uh, within the powertrain of the vehicle, as well as your typical 12 volt battery. It's separate from that. Um, but what it does is it helps alleviate the load on the engine, um, powering things like electronics, your headlights. Um, it, it allows the engine to be quieter, uh, easier auto stop start functions. Um, so then there's also your typical hybrid, which, you know, we think of like a Prius, something like that, which uses a battery pack in it to really help the engine be more efficient and get you better gas mileage. So there's always things that the automakers are doing to um, make the internal combustion engine more efficient. Um, but there's also a lot of applications in which it's not going to go away anytime soon. The ICE isn't dead, but if it's not careful, it will be in critical care real soon. I was at the LA Auto Show a few weeks ago. It was interesting. None of the domestic automakers, Ford, Chrysler, uh, General Motors, debuted any new vehicles. But very quietly, Chrysler announced at that event that the Hellcat, which is their big internal combustion V8, powerful street racing machine, this, they're going to be walking away from the V8 engine and coming up with a fully electric version of the Hellcat very soon. One of the things that's slowing them up right now is they know how to build the electric motor. They have an idea on how to do the battery. They're spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to create the sound, that rumble, that effect that we associate with an internal combustion engine. So right now we're about one and a half percent penetration for battery electric vehicles in the market. I suspect over the next three to five years, that number will start creeping up. When we get to 10%, you know, battery electrics will start being a serious factor. When we get to 15 to 30%, it will be a game changer. And this is not just in terms of efficiency. I can plug the car in and drive it all day and come home and park it. It's also a public health issue. One of the things that we don't think about is even as clean as cars are today, they're still uh, emitting noxious fumes. If we could take 10 to 20% of the cars off the road every day that are doing internal combustion, carbon monoxide coming out of the tailpipe, think of the quality of air, especially in our urban centers. And that is really the name of the game going forward. We tend to think that electrification is really an environmental green thing. It's a public health issue. And uh, that's something we should consider. Well, to get out of here on this, I'm in the market for a new car. How long am I going to have to wait to get what I want? And can I get what I want? Well, it depends. It really depends upon exactly what you want. If you're looking to get a really, really popular vehicle, something like a new Ford Bronco or a Ford Maverick or, say, a full-size GM uh, SUV, something like a Cadillac Escalade or a GMC Yukon, uh, you might be waiting uh, quite a few months in order to get exactly what you want. Uh, likely you'll go to a dealership and they will not even be able to get you one. You will likely have to order it. Um, I will say sometimes in certain cases, you also might not be able to get exactly what you want with the chip shortage. Um, certain automakers are, are leaving out 
some features that you would typically get on a vehicle because they're trying to uh, ration their chips. So uh, certain vehicles aren't even coming with, say, uh, heated seats or heated steering wheels, which for a lot of people is a deal breaker. <laughs> so these You're are right about that. <laughs> it's like no heated seats. Especially as we go into these winter months, right? So it's something that um, I would recommend if you have a vehicle in mind, doing your research, making sure that you um, communicate very clearly with a dealer to know that you're getting exactly what you want because certain convenience features, if they're left out, that also could affect resale value in the future. I've been talking to Jessica Ray of Maryland Public Television's MotoWeek and Greg Morrison of Bumper to Bumper TV. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. We have to take another break, but don't you go anywhere. When we come back, we'll drop in on Baltimore's high school tech hub, the Digital Harbor Foundation, and its executive director, Andrew Coy. Director Coy helped us find students and their tech wish list. Our next entry comes from Miles J., who works with the Makers Foundation Group. His list includes a smartphone, a smart watch, a PC computer, a VR headset, and a Nintendo Switch. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City, the monthly show here on 88.1 WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. Technology is clearly the domain of young people. They are the early adopters of new tech and find new and interesting ways to use what we take for granted. In Baltimore, there is a unique organization which nurtures and provides a pathway for high schoolers. It's called the Digital Harbor Foundation. I had a chance to talk with its executive director, Andrew Coy. Let's talk a little bit about Digital Harbor Foundation. Uh, Obviously, uh, it has some connection to Digital Harbor High School in Baltimore. But why don't you explain why you created the Digital Harbor Foundation? Yeah, well, I was a classroom teacher at Digital Harbor High School about a decade ago, I guess, at this point, uh, and certainly saw the the number of, of young people in the classroom that I taught that were interested in going from the classroom to a career in tech, but looking for pathways and opportunities, you know, and and so I started taking young people to any number of different tech community meetups and, and events you know, whether this is back in the days of like Betascape and Create Baltimore, you know, and a whole variety of, of different really innovative uh, experiences that were available. And, and so when, you know, two blocks down the street, the South Baltimore Tech Center, or sorry, excuse me, the South Baltimore Rec Center was slated to be closed down. Uh, you know, it was one that we rallied in the community and said, hey, this should be a community asset, be something that's open. Rec centers matter a lot to community members. Uh, and so somebody said, what would you do with it? And I 
outlined a vision of turning a rec center into a tech center and the opportunities that that would provide. And so they said, well, why don't you do that? And, uh, you know, 10 years later, here we are talking about some of the, the work and the things that have grown out of, out of that, uh, you know, but we, we've created a space for young people to create and, and explore technology. You've done this now for 10 years. What have you seen over that time? Because um, I'm assuming some of the folks have graduated, gone on to tech, but um, what have you seen? Some things haven't changed, you know, and unfortunately, one of those things is the digital divide is, is real and is even more apparent, even more um, uh, problematic in today's, in today's world. Other things that haven't changed, you know, include the the need to uh, provide innovative and exploratory experiences for young people. What I mean by that, you know, I remember as a classroom teacher, and this is not how sort of any teacher sort of designs it per se, but the system overall has created a structure in which, to me, it felt like I was eating bread by eating a cup of flour, taking a drink of water, having a teaspoon of salt and of yeast, which like all the ingredients are bread, but is a really disgusting way to eat it. And, and, you know, knowledge out of context is like giving a, a kid a cup of flour and saying, here, eat this. And it's like, well, when am I ever going to eat that? When am I ever going to use that? When am I ever going to you know do with that is, is what you hear back because out of context, you aren't right. But you mix it with water, you mix it with things, you mix it. And that mixing activity is where it derives so much value. So one of the things that hasn't changed is the need to contextualize learning. And another way to say this is to solve real world problems. You know, we, young people are hungry to, to work on the problems they see around them. They, you know, they don't wanna be focused on made up problems. Uh, now there's a place and a time and a, and a role to learn a set of shared knowledge and to then build on that knowledge. But I think we'd be surprised at how quickly young people can transition from uh, learning about something to, to working on something and provide real value insight and work, you know, that, that will contribute to all, for all of us, for the benefit of everyone. I know that your mission remains the same, but you have evolved. You, you're not just doing what I would call just coding only. You're doing more than that, aren't you? Yeah, I would, I would broadly describe two things that we care about as digital equity for everyone. And that involves, you know, the, the skills and the access that need to go along with that. And then diversity in, in the tech workplace. You know, we need to provide more pathways, more opportunities for more young people in Baltimore, specifically, you know, some of our geographic focus, but nationally, certainly as well, uh, into the tech land, into the tech opportunities. And in the way I would describe Digital Harbor Foundation today is we are a portfolio of projects that are addressing these issues in various ways. The tech center is perhaps our best known locally uh, sort of footprint. It's where young people can come out of school time. So after school, summertime, and they can explore and learn a whole variety of skills, you know, but it's, it's really focused on their creativity, their tech uh, uh, skill and their pathway into, into the tech careers that, that they're interested in uh, and that they're hungry for opportunities for. The other things that we do involve educator professional development, which is called the Center of Excellence, as well as we work with other locations, uh, rec centers here around Baltimore and Pittsburgh, uh, as well as, as some hospital settings and other settings that we provide educator professional development and training and supports through what we call the Tech Extension. So those are some of our, our uh, you know, programs that are geographically focused here, perhaps, 
But then we also have a number of, uh, in the portfolio, a number of projects that relate to national work. So one of the portfolio projects is called Last Mile Education Fund, founded by Ruth Farmer, uh, and, and that provides scholarships to women studying computer science in their last two years of schooling. We also have a, another uh, project, a fiscally sponsored project called Project Waves, uh, focused on internet access here in Baltimore, founded by Adam Bumod and led now by Samantha Musgrave. And that has you know, connected over 400 households, about 1,000 individuals to free internet during the pandemic. Uh, and so these, these projects are under the umbrella of Digital Harbor Foundation, but it certainly is exciting to see the ways in which we have grown, the team has grown, and that we are really working to tackle issues of the digital divide and, and diversity in tech. One of the things I know is, is that you were getting all the nerds. <laughs> and um, tell me what a typical youngster who comes to you and why they come to you. Sure. So, you know, we are focused, uh, you know, here in Baltimore City, uh, on Baltimore City Public Schools. And that, and that's where, you know, we go and we recruit in the schools. We have a great relationship with the principal uh, at Digital Harbor High School and, this, and the staff and the team there uh, excited about, about what, what Digital Harbor High School represents and how we, we partner. Um, and so when a young person comes in, and comes after school, right, this is on their own time. They, they don't have to be there with us but they're gonna get at first a survey course. They're gonna to get to dabble in a lot of different things. They're gonna to get to do some 3D printing. They're gonna do some uh, coding and, and programming, some hands-on making and, uh, and a variety of, of things from web development to just problem solving and, and the design thinking process. Because the thing that we really want to ask a young person is what do you wanna make? What do you wanna do? What problem do you wanna solve? And so they apply all of these different uh, skill sets to a problem that they identify and that they explore. For example, during the uh, pandemic, we did uh, an activity that we call a COVID slam. And slam is, is like a kind of like a hackathon, which a hackathon is, is like an intense time period where you get to work on problem solving using tech tools often, um, but a lot of creative thinking and, and problem solving. And young people came together to solve a problem that they identified. And we had five different teams competing, and there were some prizes and, and things. And, and Smart Logic, a local tech company, had sponsored this, and they provided some staff that came in and also uh, mentored and volunteered on some of the, the Saturdays when the youth were getting together. But these youth were identifying problems that they saw in their in their daily walk and talk. And uh, and so, you know, during the COVID slam uh, a year ago now is when, is when that was happening. Um, all five teams identified issues relating to mental health. Uh, you know, they identified that in school, in a remote school environment, there was not really opportunity to make friends. There's not opportunity to interact. I mean, there was no hallway to be bumping into others. There was no sort of before class, after class kind of chat. It was, you were like in a Zoom class and then you weren't. And, you know, I remember asking the youth when we were, when they were presenting, I said, how many of you made a friend this year, a new friend that you didn't have at the start of the year? And this was December, mind you, and no one raised their hand. Um, no, no one said that they made a new friend. And, and so what the youth did to solve for that is they created a discord server, which is kind of like a Slack channel or like a messaging platform that would allow for, for young people to explore and make friendships kind of in a virtual hallway, if you will. And, and they built out all these uh, protocols and structures around that. They designed a bunch of experiences and activities 
And then during the Summer Youth Works program, they rolled it out with a, a larger group of youth that were able to test it and, and explore it who were in a virtual environment, but then were benefiting from the opportunity to make friends and, and connect with others. Um, you know, over the summer, we also then did another uh, slam where the youth were able to use design thinking principles the same way. And they solved for problems relating to the design. Uh, one of them uh, created a, a floor plan for a rec center. They, they outlined how they thought a rec center could, could really be an anchor part of their community. Another one, another group of, of youth worked on how to ensure that a local park was, was cleaner and more friendly for, for people to use and, and benefit from. So, you know, what blew me away in listening to those presentations and what the youth are working on is they want to solve problems. They see the problems around us. They are hungry to be involved. And if you just give them sort of space, time, and, and a few tools with access to more tools, they'll, they'll go after it. They'll come up with ideas that will uh, inspire you, that will humble you, that will, will make you want to just sit back and say, okay, how can I support you more? Like, what more do you need? Because you are on the, the path that, that this city needs, that we all need, you know, and, uh, and seeing that in the, in the young people of Baltimore City is what, is what inspires me to, to do the work that I do. You now have had a number of individuals who've passed your program. Some have actually gone on to college. Some are working. What's that experience been like? Yeah, I mean, seeing full circle and full cycle is is inspiring, right? Seeing young people who, when they first came to us, I'm thinking of one young lady who first came to us, um, thought that computers and IT was like um, sitting in front of uh, you know Word uh, and doing help desk. Uh, didn't under, didn't have a, a sort of understanding of the possibilities, but the moment she came into the program and started to explore her other passion, which was photography through technology in other ways, and then continued down this path, she has since got a full ride scholarship to, to College Park, uh, graduated with a computer science degree uh, just this last year, and, and got internships out at some tech companies and is, is off on her way. You know, I'm thinking about uh, another young man who you know went through sort of a similar pathway where didn't know what he wanted to do, but came into the space with a friend and, and just sort of explored and, and developed the skill set. You know, but seeing this full cycle of, of interest to skill development, to um, pathway, you know, exploration, uh, to, to job opportunities is, is incredibly rewarding and something that, um, you know, I know both as an educator myself, but then also as a parent, uh, it, is, it is what we hope for for young people is to feel a sense of possibility, a sense of connectedness, you know, a sense of, of purpose and, and that it is internally present, right? That it's not, it's not just for some external reward, um, you know, and the out of school time space for all of the, you know, all of the work that goes into, we have to go fundraise money for it, right? It's not something that just uh, is part of, of our regular fabric for, for program support. We have to recruit youth into it. It's not something that every youth has to be at. For all of those struggles, um, the reward and the benefit is to see those young people that um, that do find that internal drive themselves for what they want to do and then pursue that um, until they, they achieve their, their goals. I want to get out of here on this. Someone walks up to you and asks you, what do you do? How do you, what do you tell them? 
I mean, in my job and work that I get to do, I, I support others in solving problems, um, you know, and those individuals are people on the team at Digital Harbor Foundation. Those are the young people of Baltimore and around the country, the folks that we have the opportunity to support. So we, we help uh, bridge the digital divide and increase diversity in tech. I've been talking to Andrew Coy. He's the executive director of Baltimore's Digital Harbor Foundation. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. We have to take one more break, but don't you go away. When we come back, a couple of thoughts on technology. Our last tech wish list comes from Sheila G of the Makers Advance Group at the Digital Harbor Foundation. Her wish in the new year, a VR headset a smartwatch, a PC computer, a Nintendo Switch, and yes, of course, a smartphone. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City, the monthly show here on 88.1 WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. There is no denying that technology is involved in everything we do. And for some of us, we can't live without it. How we use technology and apply it can have infinite possibilities. Tech is ingrained in our future. We know today's youth are at the forefront of this movement. But don't be surprised if you can teach an old dog like yours truly a few new tricks. This generation has grown up with technology at their fingertips. They have never known a world without the Internet. We must continue to encourage the next generation, and this generation to look at the impossible as an opportunity. Future City is produced and edited by Spencer Bryan. A special thank you to Rebecca Robinson for the assist. We welcome your feedback, and you can email us with your thoughts and questions about the show at Future City, that's one word, at wypr.org. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations we heard from today, or maybe you just want to listen to a past broadcast, please visit wypr.org and search for Future City. Until next time, I'm Charles Robinson for 88.1 WYPR and my producer Spencer Bryan and everyone who makes Future City possible. We hope your dreams of tomorrow become a reality. I'm your host, Charles Robinson. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at mccormickcorporation.com.